Today we begin chapter 10, so we shall read chapter 9, verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 4, because that passage speaks of the same thing. It speaks of uh, Israel's unbelief and our prayer for them. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayers to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. The grass withers, the flower faints, but the word of our God will stand forever. Brothers, the conflict between Israel and Gaza is continuing to escalate by the day. For two weeks, Gaza has been bombed by the Israel Defense Forces, leading to death toll reported of 4,000 in Gaza and over 1,300 Israelis. Tens of thousands are wounded. We, of course, abominate the deaths of people. We pray for peace. Meanwhile, the Iranians might be urging the Hezbollah in Lebanon to attack Israel. There has been a few exchanges of fire there by the border. Many countries are gathering against Israel. They are condemning the bombing in Gaza. The Arab world might be gathering together, especially against Israel. What should be the Christian response? But a more shocking sight in Gaza might be described as the bombing of the Baptist hospital, killing hundreds of people this last week. People who were uh, being treated, some had gone there for shelter, they all were bombed. Then there was the bombing of St. Porphyra's Greek Orthodox Church in Gaza City, where people were sheltering, leading to many deaths, and deaths of at least 18 Christians at the Orthodox Church. The Jews have no problem killing both Muslims and Christians. Both are their enemies. Why do I say this? To show you 
a stark contrast between ethnic Israelites, the Jews, and Christians, whether they are Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians, because Christians love, Christians are peaceful. What should be the Christian response is my question this morning. And the answer is in the text before us. To pray for them and to pray especially that they may be saved. Because if they were Christians, there would be a different attitude altogether. To understand the accusation of unbelief, you need to look at the whole Bible. We must not excuse anything that is being done. We need to condemn it and urge faith in Jesus Christ, who according to the flesh was born in their lineage. They ought to trust in this long-expected Messiah, David's son, yet David's Lord. From this passage, Romans 10, 1 to 4, you will notice four things. First of all, there is the prayer for Israel, and the prayer is that they may be saved. And then secondly, you will notice the condition of Israel. That condition can be described is described in verse 2 and 3. They have one zeal without knowledge. Two, they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. Three, they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. Four, they do not submit to God's righteousness. That's their condition up until right now. In that place, we will show that the only hope for Israel is in Christ and in none other. And finally, we'll see in the fourth place that the way to Christ is only one, faith. So let's begin then with a prayer for Israel. For Paul says here, brothers, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, them meaning Israelites, is that they may be saved. That word brothers there is not a reference to the Jews. It is to you who are seated here this morning. It's to Christians. Paul writes to brothers in verse 1. That is the brothers and sisters to whom he was writing in Rome. And Paul bears his heart. And he says, My heart's desire my heart's desire, or more literally, the good pleasure of my inner being. Paul's heart is wrapped in love, leading to prayer. He says, my heart's desire and prayer for them. Paul's heart. Paul's desire is to pray for them. Christians are peaceful. 
peace-loving people. And this is what we must be, even to those who hate us, even to those who may persecute us, we pray for them. Paul's prayer was to God, is what he says here. My brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God. We pray to God, not to men or women. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to Mary, though people may call her the mother of God. We don't pray to the dead. Mary is dead. We don't pray to the saints who are dead or whether they are alive or dead. We don't pray to the saints at all. We pray to God. That's what we read here. My heart's desire and prayer to God. We do not pray through any other person. We pray to God in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. For he is the only mediator between God and man. He mediates between an infinitely holy God and a totally depraved sinners. There's only one mediator. He is truly God and truly man. We pray to God in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. What did Paul pray for them? That they may be saved. And you notice what Paul did not pray for Israel. He did not pray for them to have bigger land. He did not pray for the expansion of their kingdom. He prayed for them to be in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He did not pray for their peace in the promised land. He prayed for them to be under the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not pray against their enemies, for he knew that they were the enemies of the cross. He prayed that they would know Jesus Christ and bow at his feet. He prayed that they may be saved. And you ask, saved from what? Not saved from the Philistines, not saved from the Palestinians, not saved from men, but saved from God. Saved from the wrath of God. When we say that we are saved, we are first of all saying that we are saved from God. Because you know, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18 God's wrath will consume everyone who is not in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. No one will be spared when this wrath of God from heaven is revealed. So Paul prayed that they will be saved from the wrath to come. And he prayed that they will be saved from their sins. We know that God is holy and does not condone sin. He will punish all evildoers, whether Jews or Greeks. The soul that sins 
whether a soul of a Gentile or a soul of a Jew, the soul that sins shall surely die. That's the law. And remember, to them belong the receiving of the law. The law says, the soul that sins shall surely die. So Paul prays for them that they will be saved from their sins. For he knew that the wages of sin, whether to the Jew or to the Gentile, the wages of sin is death. But he knew that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he prayed for them to God that they may be saved from the wrath of God and from their sins. To be saved from your sins is the best thing that can happen to you. To be saved from your sins, you must confess your sins. To be saved from your sins, you must ask Christ for his mercy, for his saving mercy. And you know, the Bible says that, but God, being rich in mercy, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, God, being rich in mercy, this is what he prays for them. Because of his great love, he tells the Ephesians. This is what he's praying for them. And this is my prayer for you. To be saved from your sins. To be saved from your sins, you must repent and renounce your sins. For the Bible says, whoever conceals his sins will not prosper. But he who confesses and renounces them will obtain mercy. You must repent. To repent is to turn around. You are going the way of your sins and you will commit more and more sins and you turn around and you go the way of the Savior where your sins are forgiven. This is what he prayed for them. He prayed that they would be saved from their sins and from the wrath of God. And you realize that to delay in repentance and to stay with your sins is to invite God's wrath upon you. And God's wrath comes upon sinners now and later. You remember when I preached through Romans 1, I pointed out to you that there is the wrath of God now and there is the wrath of God to come. The wrath of God now leaves you in your sins. And you continue to commit your sins and your sins continue destroying you more and more, more and more, awaiting the wrath of God to come. But the, when the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, it's not talking about the wrath of God to come. It's talking about the wrath of God being revealed right now. So when you continue in your sins, and especially when you come to church and you are told about your sins, and you continue in them without repentance, the shame. You must be delivered from your sins. You must be saved. Because to be saved is to be delivered. It's not possible for you to be saved and not be delivered. 
Okay? I've heard people say, I'm saved pastor, but I'm not delivered. Uongo mtu. If you're saved, you're delivered. Because I've heard people who think that the reason why they continue in their sins, even though they name the name of the Lord, is because they are yet to be delivered. And they are waiting for Pastor Morungi to make an altar call to deliver them. He won't make it. Because it's a lie. I've seen people go for that second deliverance. And others have been lied to to believe that the problem is not really their sins. It is a demon in them for which they need to give a fee to the pastor to be delivered. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved you. He has also delivered you. And we pray that they would be saved from their sins and delivered. from the wickedness of this world of sin. You must be saved. The Lord Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the foremost. Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. So I ask you, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved from your sins? Are you saved from the wrath to come? From the wrath of God? If you are saved, praise God. If you're not saved, why not be saved now? The Lord is willing. The Lord is, the Lord is able to save you now. We saying, come every soul by sin oppressed. There is mercy in the Lord. We ask another question. What motivated Paul to pray for Israel like this? Let me say a few things to jog your memory about who the Israelites were in relation to Paul. Do you remember how the Jews had treated, or rather mistreated Paul from when he was converted. Right there in Damascus, he became their enemy and they sought to kill him. That's what the Bible says in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 23. From, from his conversion, as soon as they, the Jews learned that Paul, that great Pharisee who sat under Gabaliel, is now a Christian, they said, kill him. The high priest said, kill him. From the very beginning. And every city that Paul visited, he would always seek to bring the gospel to his brothers to his kinsmen. And what did he get as a thank you note? Beatings. More beating. In every single city that Paul went to preach the gospel, he also received beatings upon beatings. At one point in Lystra, 
They stoned him. And they clapped for themselves and said, Paul is dead. And the Bible says they dragged him, supposing that he was dead. That is in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. And what did Paul give in return? More love for them and more prayer for them. He prayed for them that they may be saved. Paul loved his kinsmen so deeply that even though he, re he received that 40 lashes less one, he still wanted them to hear the gospel. Though they persecuted him, Paul obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ who said, remember in the sermon on the mount, pray for those who do what? Pray for those who spitefully use you and, and persecute you. He did that. Paul knew that Jesus was a long-awaited Messiah whom his kinsmen needed for their salvation. The best that could happen to them was to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Brethren, when you love someone dearly and sincerely, you will pray for them. You will pray for them Though they are arrogant and spiteful, though they insult you, though they stone you, you pray for them. Some of you have unbelieving parents who hate your Savior, right? Pray for them. Some of you have siblings who hate you, especially because of your Savior Christ. Pray for them. Some of you have neighbors who mock you. Pray for them. You pray for them. We entrust them to the Lord to undertake for them that which you cannot do for them. Prayer is the best way of saying, I love you. Husbands, the Bible calls you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. When Christ loves the church, what does he do for the church? He prays for her, right? So husbands in, the, in, in here, how much do you pray for your wives? And some of you might say, I prayed for her last week, Pastor. I have no part on your back for you. If you prayed for your wife last week, shame on you. You need to pray for your wife every day. You need to be telling me, I prayed for her today. And I will pray for her today all the more. If you love your wife, you will pray for her. If Paul prays for the Israelites, who supposed that he was dead, how much more should you pray for your wife who cooks for you? How much more should you pray for your wife who is the flesh of your flesh and the bone of your bones? Or is, he, is she not? 
Let me not say anything new. I urge, the Bible says, I urge that prayers, supplications, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And especially for your wife. And especially for the Jews because of their unbelief. And especially for your, your God-mocking neighbor. And especially for all those who hate the Lord. Pray for them. Secondly, look at the condition of Israel. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. To bear them witness is to continually testify about or concerning them. He is saying that he knows them well and he can describe their condition because he, Paul himself, was a what? He was a Jew. And once upon a time, before Damascus road encounter, he was like one of them. So he knew them very well. He describes them as being ignorant. That is in a condition of being constantly ill-informed. What were they ignorant about? It was with respect to God's righteousness. The righteousness in view here is not the righteousness which God has and God is in himself, but the perfect righteousness that God provides by his grace. What did Paul know about his kinsmen according to the flesh? Four things there that characterize the condition of the Israelites from these two verses. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal. They have it. It doesn't say they had a zeal. Their zeal is not gone, even to present day. Their zeal of this nature is still with them. Their zeal, you notice that they had a zeal for who? For God. And you notice that they have a zeal for the true God, for Yahweh. Their problem is not that they are idolaters. They know the true God. Remember that to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. The receiving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Who is God over all. Blessed forever. Their problem is not that they do not have proper theology. That's not their problem. And their problem 
is not that they lack a zeal, like most of you, by the way. That's not their problem. Most of you lack a zeal. And we pray for you to have it. Most, most charismatics would put you to shame when it comes to zeal. True? Not the Jews. For they have, and Paul is saying, I testify about their zeal for who? They have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. So they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They are not ignorant of God. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God. So this is a very fine line. Their problem is not that they do not know God. Their problem is that they know God, but, and they are zealously seeking for God, but the way to get God, they believe, is according to their own righteousness. They seek to establish their own righteousness, and they fail to submit to God's righteousness. This is their problem. So their problem is very fine. So they are very, very close to the kingdom because you know they have the they have the law of the kingdom. They know the king of the kingdom is from their race. They know quite a lot. But when it comes to the way by which they will get to God, they want to establish their own righteousness. And they refuse to submit to God's righteousness. And their understanding of this righteousness is the understanding that Luther had before God saved him. You know that uh, Luther was preaching through the, the book of Romans. And he got to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And he read that. And he had about the righteousness of God. And what, what was his conclusion? This is the righteousness that belongs to God, which God has, the righteousness that God has. This is the righteousness that God is, was his conclusion. But this righteousness of God is unattainable, was his conclusion. I cannot reach to God's righteousness because all his attempts he realized he failed. And Luther could lash himself for his failure. He thought that uh, ascetism was the means to righteousness, to godliness. And you know, most of you are like that. Most of you are like that. You think that to get God's righteousness, you must be righteous by your own efforts. And so you have some zeal. 
or fervor marked by a sense of dedication to God. Yet this zeal for God was not according to the truth. It was not according to knowledge of God. It was according to their own knowledge. They had a zeal and ignorance at the same time. What an awful combination. To have zeal and ignorance. For zeal without knowledge is... The Bible says zeal without knowledge is dangerous. That's why when you became a Christian, we baptized you, we did not send you immediately to Marisabit town to plant a church. Because zeal without knowledge is dangerous. That's why when God called Moses, it took a while before he commissioned him for the work. That's why the Lord Jesus did not call the twelve to himself and send them out immediately. He trained them and trained them and gave them practicals and assessed their practicals. And their first result, the, the, the practicals that they came back with was not very good because they came back reporting how Satan was and the demons were bowing down to them and they thought Jesus will be clapping for them. Jesus told them, not quite. Yes, I saw Satan fall like lightning. But don't rejoice about that. But don't be rejoicing about demons coming out of people. Because they might go back again. What are they to rejoice about? You notice here that uh, Paul's witness regarding his kinsmen according to the flesh shows why he was so heartbroken about them and so prayed for them. This is what in informed his fervency in prayer for them. And the reason for Paul's testimony of their nature is, 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 the re is because he was exactly like that before the Lord graciously opened his own eyes. This is how he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 to 8. He says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who are those? Yes? When Paul says, For we are the circumcision. Who is he referring to? Yes? Huh? What's that? Us. You. We are the circumcision who boasts not in the flesh. And he says, though I, myself, Paul, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have him. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, of Hebrews, 
as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, oh, there it is, a persecutor of the church. Dangerous zeal, isn't it? A zeal that persecuted the church of Christ. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen to that. Blameless. And he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of a surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. A deadly zeal, a destructive zeal, Paul had, with which he persecuted the church. And Paul was so blighted then, just as the Israelites are blighted, as he writes to the Romans. But nevertheless, God grabbed him by the gospel of his son. In his rich mercy, he showered, he showered him with his great love. And he showed him the error of his ways and forgave him his sin and by grace saved him and adopted him into his family. And he brought him into his service. Paul never forgot how he acted. Consequently, years later, he could say of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles. And worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And regarding this matter about the Jews, Charles Haddon Spurgeon comments and he says, They were very zealous, but it was blind zeal. They were very energetic, but they used their energy in going the wrong way. God has a righteousness, and our wisest course is to submit to it. Our righteousness, if we set it up in opposition to God's way of salvation, will only increase our sin. You can be ruined by your own righteousness. As surely as by your own unrighteousness. If you set it in the place of salvation, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So do you want your righteousness or do you want the grace of God? Those are the two options. And the only hope for Israel, for you, is Christ. We say Christ alone. Christ Christ alone. Christ alone. And if you're from Rendil, you can say Christ Kaldai. Yesu Peke is the only hope. Because the Bible says here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
There is no doubt that the only hope for Christ is in, uh, for Israel is in Christ. Their hope is not in their zeal. Their hope is not in their ignorance. Their hope is not in their self-righteousness. Their hope is not in their efforts. Their hope is not in their adoption. Their hope is not in their glory. Their hope is not in their covenants. Their hope is not in their patriarchs. Their hope is in Christ. Their hope is not in their law. Their hope is in Christ. Their hope is not in their military prowess. Their hope is not in their land. Their hope is in Christ. Their hope is one. Christ. Who according to the flesh was descended from them. And he is God over all. And he is blessed forever. But that statement, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, is a very, very hard statement. It has been debated and debated by theologians. What does it mean? That Christ is the end of the law. That word end. Does it mean that Christ ends the law? Yes? No. Does it mean that with Christ there is no more need for law? The new covenant theology, NCT, or new Calvinism, will tell you that this verse means there is no more need for the law. Do not bite that hoop. It's dangerous. So what does this mean? Christ, meaning the promised Messiah, Christ is the end, and that word in Greek, it's telos. And when we learned homiletics, we were told by J. Adams that telos means purpose. So he has a whole book on preaching with purpose. There is a word. That word telos means purpose. So when I preach to you like this, I have a purpose. What do you mean? What do you think is my purpose in this sermon? It's in my title. The one thing that I want you to live here with is to pray for Israel. That's the telos of this sermon. So when you read Christ is the end of the law, you may put there in the word end, goal. Or purpose of the law. Christ is the fulfillment. Or Christ is the purpose of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. Jesus by his life and death and resurrection has accomplished 
everything in the law to fulfill all God's righteousness for everyone who believes in him. Through his life of obedience to all the law of God, which is called his active obedience, and then his death on the cross, which is called his passive obedience, he satisfied the legal, all the legal demands of the law of God. And he turned away the wrath of God for our transgressions. We know that Christ was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Why? Galatians 4.4 4. So that we, you and me, along with Jews and Greeks and barbarians and Savians and everyone who names the name of the Lord might be justified, might receive adoption as sons. For in the fullness of time, he, that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He fulfilled all the law of God faithfully. He met all the legal demands of the law fully. And all those who are in Christ are declared righteous, not on the account of what they do, but on the, on the account of what he, that is Jesus, does. This means that the law of God no longer has any judicial claims over us to condemn us. Therefore, Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, and he says, There is now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is life and life abundantly for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is peace with God. For those who are in Christ Jesus, they are reconciled to God. There is peace of God that surpasses all understanding for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Because if you're not in Christ Jesus, then you're still in your sins. If you're still in your sins, then you have not been forgiven. And if you have not been forgiven your sins, then the wrath of God remains on you. And if the wrath of God remains on you, then all hell is yours to inherit. You are under the law with its condemning power. And lastly, the way to Christ is one. Faith. What does verse 4 say? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes in what? In Christ. For to attain the right standing with God, you must believe in His Son. No other way. Faith in Christ is the only way to salvation. Acceptance with God is to everyone who believes. Justification is by faith in Christ alone. 
completely trusting in Jesus' person and work alone for life and for salvation is what is, what is in view here. This is well expressed in the hymn that we just sang. Jesus, thy blood and thy righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Means flaming worlds in this arrayed with joy shall I lift up my hand. Then Nicholas Sinsendorf writes and he says, Bold shall I stand in that day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? He's asking that question in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? For who ought to my chance shall lay? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither things present nor things to come, neither angels nor demons, neither rulers nor principalities, nothing fully absorbed through this I am from sin and fear, from guilt and from shame. Amen. And Matthew Henry commenting on verse 4 says, Christ is thus the end of the law for righteousness. That is for justification. But it is only to everyone that believeth. Upon our believing what is that? That is our humble consent to the terms of the good news. We become interested in Christ's satisfaction and so are justified, declared righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Say amen to that man from Chester. Yes, indeed. So I ask you, do I really need to go any further but ask you this question? Do you believe? Do you believe in Christ? Are you a believer? If you are, is there a more privileged man or woman in the world universe who is more blessed and privileged than you? Yes? The Lord says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Which means the value of the whole world on one side of the scale and your soul on the other hand of the scale is like this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What does that mean? It means that if you have not lost your soul, the whole world you may count but loss, as Paul said earlier. The whole world you might count but loss. For the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord. Because if you're not a believer, 
The good news is that you could become one right now. You believed right away. You are declared righteous in the courts of heaven. And the angels get to know about it immediately. And they jump up and down, up and down in celebration because you believe in Christ. Now, though you may not see them, the Bible says that's what happened. The angels will celebrate if you believed in Jesus Christ this afternoon. That's a good news. If you will drop your pride and turn to the Lord for mercy, you will be saved. If you believe, immediately you enter into untold privileges and blessings of heaven. You immediately become a child of God. And all the angels of God become your ministering spirits. Did you know that? Did you know that you believers have been made, though a little lower than the angels, and yet you've been given all the angels to come and bow before you and serve you? That's why you go out and come back alive. Because the angels have been protecting you. They bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. That's what the angels do for you, believers. And Satan doesn't need to come and tell you, oh, if you worship me, oh. No, you don't need that. Because those angels that he is talking about are already doing that. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ did not fall for it. Amen? So what are you waiting for? I don't understand this. You don't want the ministry of the angels? But you have it if you're a believer. You have it. It's not that you will have it tomorrow. You have it right now. He's helping you to relish every word from the Bible. And he's causing it to become sweet to your taste buds. And you would say, let's pitch a camp here. Let's enjoy this. No, we shall not enjoy forever. The good news has been proclaimed. I finish this sermon, and I must finish it right away, by asking you this. Are you praying for what's going on in Palestine? Are you praying for the Jews? I mean, that was my purpose, I told you. But you may pray for Israel. The reason why I have first had information about what's going on is because I must, and every Christian must, be interested in what's happening. Are you praying for them? Well, I suppose you might ask me, but how do I pray for them? It's not me to tell you. The Bible has already told you. Paul says, as a Christian, my brothers, and he is, by, by calling you brothers, brothers and sisters, he is urging you too to join up with him, to pray. He is bearing his heart, his heart's desire, 
so that you too may join up with him to pray to God for them, the Israelites, so that they may be saved. Not so that they may win the war. So that they may be saved. Well, then you ask, Pastor, are you not then in effect saying, forget about the Palestinians? Do we just pray for the Jews? What about the Palestine, Palestinians? Do we only pray for those who are descended from Jacob? Whether in, in the present day Israel? Or whether they be in Russia, or in Europe, or in Asia, or in China, or in India, or in Kenya, wherever they might be. Yes, we pray for them. There are Jews all over. Every country in the world hosts Jews. Because that's the will of God for them. So there are Kenyan Jews, in case you didn't know. Brazilian Jews, they are there. We pray for them all, wherever they are. Our heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. How do we pray for them? That they may be saved. They may be saved from their sins and from the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God remains upon them who do not believe in his son. Pray for Israel to be saved. We yearn to see many of them saved and made part of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Regarding the Palestinians, we pray for the Palestinians too. Okay? We pray for them. Not necessarily that they may recover from their injuries or that there, there shouldn't be a single bomb dropped in their lad tomorrow. That could be the case, and we can pray for that. But we are primarily to pray for them that they too may be saved. This is why then Paul prays that there would be the church of Christ in every land. We know that they have rejected Jesus Christ for Allah. They continue in wickedness and rebellion against the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray for them. We pray for them. We pray for them. Every Christian needs to pray. Yes, there is much suffering going on there. Many dead, many mourning, many wounded, many starving. But most of them are without faith. They are unbelievers, and they die without faith. May the Lord deliver many Palestinians from the era of Muhammad and bring them to the truth of Jesus Christ. May the church of the Lord Jesus Christ be, be in Palestine, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, in Saudi, in Yemen. We pray that the world of Middle East, in East Asia, in Turkey, in Europe, 
in Russia, in China, all over the world. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will be known and the banner of his kingdom will be planted in every city, every village. And we pray that there will be thousands upon thousands of preachers of the gospel, the herons of the cross. We pray that there won't just be the G8 conglomerating together for economic or power purposes. We pray that the BRICS will not just expand to build economies, but they will expand for the name of Christ Jesus to be known. That's our prayer. When we hear Paul saying that he has unceasing anguish and sorrow for his brothers, according to the, to the flesh, what should be our anguish and sorrow for our own brothers and sisters, according to the flesh? When we see them staggering back home in the stupor of drunkenness, what should be our prayer? When we see them in drugs, in prostitution, and all sorts of wickedness in the world, what should be our response? There should be anguish, great sorrow, and unceasing anguish in our hearts. And we pray for them. We should have that kind of similar sorrow and unceasing anguish for our respective communities our tribesmen, our countrymen, willing to have a strong heart desire and prayer for kids that they may be saved. How much do we pray for all people? You listen to the Lord's own desire and he says, I desire, first of all, that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. All people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, the Bible says. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen.